Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you very much, Hode. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute uh, to be able to share thoughts. And I hope wherever you're listening uh, around the world that you are well, that you are safe, um, and your loved ones are uh, during these very, very difficult times. What I would like to focus on is how uh, the pandemic is likely to affect the future of globalization uh, and development, why it happened, and how we can stop future crises like this from happening again. That uh, has been the subject of many of my books. Uh, it's been the subject of my BBC series, as Hoda mentioned, and um, it's the subject of a new book I'm working on which uh, is going to be thinking about the long-term impact of the pandemic on our lives. I aim to speak for about 45 minutes or so, um, and then we'll have an opportunity for Q&A. So uh, do think of your questions, and um, you can pose those using the Q&A uh, button. This pandemic uh, was entirely inevitable, and the surprise is not that it happened, um, but that we were surprised. I've been predicting it every year uh, in all my books uh, since 2013 that it was coming and that it would lead to a grave economic crisis. And many others have too, experts on pandemics certainly, but people like Bill Gates and others. And so the question is, why didn't we stop it? Uh, are they inevitable? Can we stop future pandemics? And the answers to that question are vital because if this is the pandemic that will end all pandemics, then it might have been worthwhile. But if it simply leads to escalating tensions, growing inequality, then we're in for a dismal future in which we will have ever-increasing and possibly worse pandemics, but also other escalating risks, such as climate change and others. The question really is, are we in the First World War or are we more like in the Second World War? And as you know from your history, uh, both were terrible wars, devastating, killed tens of millions of people, and yet had very different outcomes. The First World War, due to very poor leadership, austerity, recrimination, geopolitical tensions rising, led to the Great Depression, the rise of nationalism and protectionism, um, the worst depression the world had known, and of course, an even worse war, the Second World War. But while the bombs were dropping, while the British government was fighting on five fronts around the world and had threat of being invaded, indeed, when I go running around Oxford, my hometown, you still see the blockhouses that were built in the 40s to stop the invasion of Germany. Uh, 
But despite all of that, Churchill, Roosevelt, Stalin, and others were able to envisage a better world and to ensure through the creation of the United Nations and other institutions that was the war to end all world wars. So is this the pandemic to end all pandemics and what can we do? And it wasn't only that they created a UN system with the Security Council and other institutions to stop world wars, but of course, they also created the Bretton Woods institutions, the IMF and the World Bank, uh, the Marshall Plan, which mainly focused on giving support to those that had lost the war, the enemy, and of course, in the UK, the welfare state. Then, as now, it's the youth that have made the greatest sacrifice. Of course, elderly people are most vulnerable from the pandemic. In the UK, uh, the average age of uh, mortality from COVID-19, of death, is 82 years old. In fact, there's far more chance of a young person dying in a car accident than being killed by COVID-19. And for school-age kids, there's more chance of being struck by lightning. And, you know, there's not much lightning in the UK uh, than dying of COVID-19. But young people have given up their social lives. Many of them are giving up education. Schools have been closed for big periods of time. And getting very second-rate education in the sense of not being able to have face-to-face, -face, having remote. Uh, and in addition, job prospects have greatly diminished and they're inheriting a massive debt, which will have to be paid back in the future. The young are doing this willingly, of course, to protect the old, uh, their parents, their grandparents, others in the community that they come into contact with. It's a willing sacrifice in the same way as the sacrifice in the Second World War of the young soldiers that went off was a willing sacrifice for their countries and for their communities. But the question is, what are we doing in return? And whereas in the Second World War, there were all these benefits that came out, including the hope of a better world, are we creating that now? And my hope is that we can learn from history and make sure that these sacrifices are not in vain. That means creating a more inclusive, sustainable world. But so far, what we've seen from the pandemic is the opposite. We've seen increasing inequality. We've seen increasing division and protectionism and very little in the way of solidarity within countries or between them. What we're seeing is a dramatic impact of the move to remote work on job prospects. For many people, there's been barely no impact on their incomes. The top 20% top of income earners have retained their income in 90% of the cases. So 90% of the top income earners have not lost income as a result of the pandemic. Indeed, many have become a lot wealthier because 
they've invested in technology and other stocks which are booming, or they have big properties and property prices for big properties are going up. But the bottom 50% of income earners across the world have suffered dramatically. In the advanced economies, they have to go to work and they're also more at risk. And that's true around the world, whether they're in nursing or garbage collection or waiting in restaurants, if that's allowed, um, they are more at risk. And where places have been closed down or stopped, of course, they're at risk of vulnerability. With informal workers and gig workers who do not have health and other insurance particularly vulnerable. Now, this means that within countries, there's a great increase in inequality. Uh, those that low, are lower income have suffered most. Those on higher income have barely suffered financially. And the same is true between countries. Uh, the wealthier countries have been able to issue unprecedented levels of debt, of debt at record low prices. In fact, there's 17 trillion dollars of bonds which have been issued over the past year at negative interest rates. That means that governments uh, are going to be giving back to the purchase of these bonds less. People are buying them at a loss. Um, this is extraordinary and allows governments to amass very, very high levels of debt, which now almost universally amongst the advanced economies are over 100% of GDP by the end of 2020. Developing countries do not have this option. Developing countries uh, are not in the position to increase their debt greatly for two main reasons. One is most of them don't have the capacity to issue more bonds in their own country. They don't have enough domestic savings to be able to absorb that or central banks that can simply absorb them through asset purchases. And secondly, uh, because they'll be downgraded by the credit rating agencies if they take on much more debt. And that will lead to their currencies going down further and the cost of foreign debt being even higher. And in no time, they enter into a vicious circle of more and more debt repayments. Now, while the rich countries have given themselves $12 trillion of extra funding by increasing their deficits and through bond issuance, developing countries don't have that option. In the rich countries, between 10 and 20% of GDP has now been created, additionally to what it was before, in debt, with very, very wide deficits of around 10% in many countries. And that is allowing countries that have their resources to support their businesses and their workers. Indeed, in many countries in Europe, and in some respects in the US, bankruptcy is effectively being banned, and firms are being bailed out to stay frozen rather than to go bankrupt. And workers are being given furloughs or unemployment insurance, etc. 
Now, whilst the rich countries have found $12 trillion for themselves, less than $100 billion, 1% of this, less than 1%, has been found for developing countries. In fact, aid this year will be less than it was last year because aid for most countries is calculated as a share of the size of their economies, ranging from 0.1% to 0.7%. And as the economy contracts, so too does the aid budget. The UK, for example, is likely to give a couple of billion pounds less in aid this year than last year as a result of this. So at a time when it's never been needed more, the amount of solidarity from the rich countries to the poor countries is contracting. Many more people will die of hunger and starvation than will die of COVID itself, the health impact. There are two developing countries, South Africa and Brazil, which have been particularly adversely affected, Mexico to some extent, Peru, Peru, but most African countries have not been, uh, yet the economic emergency will devastate them. And that comes from a variety of different sources. Exports have been greatly constrained. Tourism and travel have collapsed. Remittances which migrant workers send back have collapsed. Um, Taxes have collapsed as the economy is contracted and as uh, shops and other taxpayers have closed down. And of course, the currencies have gone down, which means that the cost of foreign debt is higher. So this is a contraction from all fronts, which is devastating for poor people. Even in those countries that give social security or some safety payments to low-income earners, this is not enough for most families to survive on. And as a result, the pandemic is leading to the biggest development disaster of our lifetimes and will greatly take off track uh, from the SDGs, the developing countries. It's not too late to remedy the situation, but it needs to be done urgently. Now, around the world, the nature of work is transforming, and the pandemic has accelerated trends that would have taken years to emerge in many dimensions, including in the transformation of work. What we're seeing is more rapid automation of work. This was a trend happening anyway, but has accelerated as people prefer robotic production doesn't you know people with possibly contagion but also uh, as with lockdowns workers can't go to work and so automated processes are more able to continue production this is not only true in manufacturing it's also true in services um, as call centers have been closed down uh, increasingly they are automated call services and it happens in other back office functions, administrative functions in legal, in banking, uh, in accounting, uh, and in many other sectors. This is going to be in the cloud, uh, the sort of service. And so it doesn't create jobs, very, very few. 
the automation of jobs, and my group in Oxford has estimated that up to a half of US jobs are vulnerable, um, almost two thirds of some jobs in some developing countries are vulnerable, poses a fundamental question about where work is going to come from in the future and where the work will be. There's much controversy around these numbers, and some, uh, like the McKinsey Global Institute, argue that there'll actually be more new jobs than the jobs taken away. And there will indeed be new jobs that come in the fullness of time. The question is, where are those jobs and what skills do they require? And will they be able to provide work to those that are being laid off, that are becoming unemployed as a result of automation? And that is where my concerns are. So incomes will... Uh, the gap in incomes will widen. And as we've seen, the number of extremely wealthy individuals will increase too. In the pandemic, the wealth of billionaires went up by 25%, whereas the wealth of the bottom 25% of people went down by over 10 or 15%. This gap has widened dramatically. And the reason partly is that the stock markets have been booming, and particularly the tech entrepreneurs who are in services um, that are benefited uh, from the pandemic, whether it's Amazon or Google or Facebook um, or Peloton or Zoom or others, have found themselves to be extremely wealthy uh, compared to where they were before, which was already extremely wealthy. So inequality is rising, and that, of course, uh, can have political consequences. The future of cities is also being thrown up into doubt by the increased focus on remote work. My own view is that what we're likely to have in the medium term is increasingly hybrid offices. Around the world, people are saying, that if they can work from home, they want more flexibility in the future. And competitive firms will have to provide that, otherwise they'll lose their employees to those that offer it. Much more flexibility in the hours worked, as well as in the number of days worked. How will this impact on productivity? In the short term, there seems to be some evidence that productivity has gone up, not least because something like 70 million hours a week in the U.S. are saved commuting. The average commuting time in many cities is at least half an hour each way. That's an hour a day. And in many cities, two or three hours. If, as seems to be the case, a third of that time is spent working, productivity can go up. But this comes at a cost. And although Zoom and other remote meetings can achieve most purposes, there are many ways in which it could undermine productivity in the medium term. It also reinforces existing hierarchies and networks, which means it's particularly bad for younger people in organizations that need to network, need to learn. Many professions, law, banking, consulting, journalism, and many, many others, medicine, are in fact apprenticeship professions, where people learn by observing. People learn by 
being with more experienced people by learning from them on the job and asking questions continuously as they shadow others and help them. But it's not a one-way street. It's not only that young people or new recruits are learning from those in positions. It's also that they're challenging them. In an organization like PwC, the average age is 31, and that creates a learning organization in which young people are constantly bringing in fresh blood, fresh ideas, and ensuring that the firm constantly renews itself. If that is lost, that challenge, then the firms will be less productive in the medium term. And Zoom meetings and other meetings cannot provide that challenge because they're very hierarchical. One person tends to speak at a time, uh, and it's very difficult to make friendships, to have informal conversations, to challenge, and, of course, to innovate. It's good at maintaining existing practices. It's bad at breaking existing practices. And that means that for innovation and creativity and recruitment and overcoming discrimination against those that aren't part of networks, it's going to be necessary to bring people in to work a few days a week. I envisage in the future a more hybrid office. But if people only come in 10% less, that would already have a dramatic impact on office prices. And of course, if you're only going in two or three days a week, you might be prepared to commute over longer distances and you'd want a bigger home, which means you might live further out and you'd want privacy in your home. You might want a separate study. All of that adds up to a very dramatic impact on property prices, on the future of cities, uh, and on productivity. In all respects, the pandemic is accelerating the changes. And of course, businesses are being accelerated too in their changes. While the pandemic measures in the advanced economies have frozen businesses, as soon as those are withdrawn, we'll see a big, big shakeout. Many will be obsolescent. There'll be a transformation of where the value is, and we'll see many businesses go bankrupt. Whether it's benefited large firms against small firms is an interesting question, and there seems to be some evidence of that, uh, with large firms accounting for a bigger and bigger share of market value and of employment and other important dimensions of the economy. And that's partly because large firms are more connected. And what's happened in the pandemic is that governments have become more corporatist. Government intervention has become stronger. The pendulum has swung dramatically from the 50-year-old Friedmanite ideas of shriveling the state the market being the determinant of economic activity, the pendulum has now swung to the state. In times of crisis, it's the state, not the market, that solves your problems. And a growing number of people recognize that. That having an efficient and effective state is the difference between good and bad pandemic management. What we see around the world is a very different level of pandemic management depending on the effectiveness of governments.
Some governments have done remarkably well, and many of them are very poor, like Vietnam, like Mongolia. In Europe, Greece has done the best and is one of the poorest countries. And countries that are sophisticated and have prided themselves on their scientific expertise, like the US and the UK in Europe, have done particularly badly. Clearly, what we used to think is important, which is the strength of expertise, is no longer as important as being able to learn fast. And learning fast might be imperiled by being arrogant, by being an old imperial power, by not listening to what international advice is. Those countries that have followed international guidelines, the WHO and others, have done best. Quickly, firmly. This is not about democracy versus autocracy. There are many democratic countries which have done disastrously. UK, Brazil, US, amongst them. And there are many autocratic countries that have done disastrously too, not least Russia, Turkey. But there are democratic countries that have done incredibly well, like Greece and Taiwan. And there are democratic countries, autocratic countries that have done incredibly well, like China, like Vietnam. And so we need to look beyond these categories and think about what is it that these countries that have done well have in common, and what can we learn from that about effective government. And one of the principal rules that I think is emerging is the ability to listen and learn and adapt your local conditions to international best practice. And the more arrogant you are nationally, the less likely you are. Populists have also done extremely badly, not least in Brazil, in the UK, in the US. And that failure of populism, the individualization of leadership, rather than a broad civil service with strength, is the difference between, for example, the UK and New Zealand, or between Greece and France and the UK. These are amongst the takeaways. What's also been remarkable about the pandemic, of course, is that the taboos have been broken. We were told by leading economists, by the IMF and other institutions, that if governments increased debt beyond 100%, it would be unsustainable. And yet, what we've seen overnight is what seemed impossible, unorthodox, maverick, in January, is now orthodoxy. In fact, the IMF last week called for more fiscal stimulus and more debt, even though it already has way exceeded its highest ceilings of January. This is not only with respect to debt, where the old taboos have been broken. It's also about what governments can do about regulation, banning flying, forcing us to stay at home, closing schools, doing many things which were unacceptable and only ever happened in wartime before. And even then, not to the degree that's happening now.
So the taboos of what governments can do and how powerful they are have broken. The pendulum has swung and governments are more involved in business. And that's worrying because it's become more opaque what governments are doing. A lot of what governments are doing is by stealth without citizens' involvement and transparent, open processes. We've seen that in the UK, for example, many contracts of many billions of pounds have been awarded without the normal tender processes because they're emergencies. And many have gone to friends and family of government leaders. This would not be allowed in peacetime when there was no pandemic, but it's happening now and we see this elsewhere too. Reestablishing that rigor is important. But so too is the need for creative destruction after the pandemic has ended to ensure that the big firms don't just become bigger and bigger, taking a bigger market share with government support, as that would be very bad for future innovation, for job creation, and for the return of growth. Developing countries' governments have a very different challenge to those of the rich countries because they have much less capacity in all respects. And for them, it's going to have to be a combination of getting back to where they were before, but getting much more support. It's absolutely essential that the vaccine be distributed globally, that vaccine nationalism be defeated, and that everyone gets this vaccine at an affordable price, which will require a very large level of solidarity and funding from the richer countries. The pandemic will only be defeated when it's defeated everywhere. And that is absolutely essential to understand. Whether the pandemic will result in deglobalization is a key question. But in fact, although many have said it is, I believe that's wrong. In fact, there's a much higher level of globalization in many respects. When I speak to my colleagues developing the vaccine in Oxford, they tell me they've never been more globally connected, studying the genome and its mutation around the world of the pandemic. It's also the case that we are more focused internationally than before, not only through these remote meetings and digital connectivity, which is soared, but also we're more aware. Many people know where Wuhan was before February this year. Now they do, as they know about what's happening in New Zealand and in many other places. So there's more international awareness of our connectivity. But it's not just ideas that are traveling of that nature. So to have protest movements, the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, in 100 countries in three days. This growing awareness of our shared connectivity is one aspect of globalization. Supply chains were diminishing already. And the reason is that increased automation, increased customization, increased immediacy, and politics. Automation, more and more work is being done by machines. A key reason for supply chain fragmentation was to take advantage of cheap labor elsewhere. But if now those processes are done by machines, it's cheap capital that you want to look for and skilled labor for the machines and cheap machines 
and those are more available in the advanced economies. Immediacy, we want our goods delivered online. We order them today, we want them to come in a few hours time or tomorrow. We don't want them to come in a container from the other side of the world in three weeks time. And that's bringing production back closer to home. Customization, increasingly products will be individualized. We want something that fits us as individuals. We want something increasing with medicines that's for our genome. And that will lead to more production by 3D printers and other processes closer to home. Not mass production, but individualized production. That can happen in automated production lines in a way it can't happen in big human production lines. The automated mini factory, the mini BMW car factory up the road from me in Oxford, has over a million varieties of minis. And that's possible because of that automated process. And the fourth reason is, of course, the nationalism and protectionism, which grows with inequality. These things were all bringing production back home in supply chains. But for resilient systems, we need to have distributed production as well. Other aspects of globalization are transforming, but not declining. Financial globalization is accelerating and will accelerate further as, as investors look for yields around the world and as developing countries desperately need bailouts, over 100 countries are likely to get massive capital injections over the coming years. It's also the case that investments in China have increased despite the political cold war between the US and China. And that is because they are returning to positive territory in their economy and their markets much quicker. People can make money in China, they can't in the US. And so we're seeing a very big increase in US investment in China. And indeed, we're seeing increases in container traffic as well. The port of Los Angeles has never been busier. US is increasing its share of many, uh, China is increasing its share of many US markets, including with masks and other medical equipment, as well as computers that are needed for home equipment and home remote working. So some aspects of globalization are increasing. Others, like travel and tourism, are likely to bounce back. Business travel, I believe, will be permanently dislocated, come back, but at lower levels, because we've learned the cost savings, the efficiency savings, and the benefits for the climate of not attending every meeting we attended before. Part of what's happening in this is, of course, a great shift as well in power. And the move to East Asia has been particularly noticeable, because it's not only China that has benefited by the good handling of the pandemic, but also, of course, Taiwan, South Korea, Vietnam, and other neighboring countries. So the economic center of gravity will accelerate to over East Asia, Southeast Asia, and with that, the political will follow. The Belt and Road Initiative and indebtedness to China, countries become more dependent on Chinese finance, as well as on trade and medical equipment. All of this is leading to a power shift that was happening anyway, accelerating China becoming the biggest economy and 
its political power increasing as the U.S. has shot itself in both feet. Not only through protectionism and nationalism is it becoming a bit less a part of the world economy, but through mishandling of COVID and, of course, withdrawal from the WHO and climate agreement. Now, President Biden will restore some of this, but I believe it will continue to be rather isolationist on trade and rather confrontational with China. And that will not benefit the China's place, the US's place in the new world order. The UK having brexited becomes less and less significant and is really a marginal player in the future going forward. The three key players are China, Europe, and the US. And for Europe, the critical question is how it handles the growing tensions, ongoing tensions between China and the US. My own view is that on certain issues like climate change, they need to work and stopping pandemics much closer with China, as well as, of course, with the US. But that will be challenging given the human rights concerns and other concerns in Europe. On climate change and the environment, the jury's out. Although in the short term, the pandemic has led to uh, lowering maybe by 10% of carbon emissions this year and pollution, which has been most welcome. In the medium term, many of the stimulus packages are very carbon intensive. Indeed, after the financial crisis, although there was a short-term reduction in carbon emissions, in the medium term, they accelerated because the fiscal stimulus led to a lot of investment in infrastructure in steel uh, and cement, which accelerated uh, climate change. It's important the same doesn't happen here and that the Green New Deals, which Europe has announced, 350 billion euro, South Korea, 80 billion dollars, that sort of deal, where we build back better through green investments, uh, becomes absolutely center stage. Finally, are we able to stop future pandemics? And why was this one inevitable? In my book, The Butterfly Defect, I write about how globalization has increased complexity, and this complexity requires management if we are not to be overwhelmed by it. The super spreaders of the goods of globalization are also the super spreaders of the bad. Airport hubs spread many good things, as of course Abu Dhabi and um, the Emirates know, travel, opportunity, students, but also other sources of spreading of pandemics. In the same way that financial centers spread investment possibilities, financing possibilities for businesses and individuals to thrive around the world, but also can be the source of cascading financial crises. Cyber servers allow us to have this digital conversation, but also could be the source of cyber attacks into all of our computers. And the unintended spillovers of success are often negative. It's wonderful that so many people are getting energy for the first time in their lives. That's great progress. But that's also led to escalating climate change. It's wonderful that so many people around the world are taking antibiotics, many for the first time. That's led to escalating risk of antimicrobial resistance. And so how do we have these goods of globalization? without the bads? How do we ensure that we are able to harvest the benefits and stop the bad, negative consequences of globalization? 
There's no wall high enough that can keep out these threats. And that's why protectionism and nationalism are the inappropriate response. No wall high enough that's going to stop Miami being engulfed by the ocean as oceans rise when the Antarctic, Arctic, Greenland ice and other ice melts. No wall high enough that will stop a pandemic. It'll be in the country before one knows it. But what high walls do keep out is the ideas, the technologies, the people, the investment opportunities, the students, the tourism, the finance, and the other things we need to thrive, not least the vaccines we need and the scientific collaboration. Most of all, what the high walls keep out is our ability to cooperate. And it's that which is being tested. Are we able to come together to stop the next pandemic? Are we, by learning to work together, able to stop climate change and the other great threats we face? Or is this going to lead to a more divided world? That's what's really at stake here. It's not that governments have to do everything. Cities are very powerful. Companies can do a lot and communities can do a lot to stop these threats. And most of the threats can be stopped by small numbers of players, the Pareto principle. 80% of the threats can be solved by 20% of the players, and many of those not governments, but private companies and others. Pandemics are different. Pandemic is the only threat we face that all countries in the world and all people in the world need to be part of the solution. Because a pandemic can come from anywhere. The poorest country, the richest country, a lab in New York, or a wet market in an African village. And that makes pandemics very different. And it means that when we think about stopping pandemics, we need to really think about the global community. We need to think about our ability to work together and why it's a particular test for us all. If we can manage this pandemic and come out of it, we would have learned to do that. Now, we need to see this as a wake-up call. The danger is that we have a vaccine that we return to normal, and we slip into the same dangerous complacency that led us to where we are today. That's what happened after the success of dealing with SARS, with MERS, with Ebola, and other pandemics. That's what happened with the apparent success in dealing with the financial crisis. But we have not stopped systemic risks. There will be another pandemic which could be even worse than this. There will be another financial crisis there will be other risks, not least climate, that overwhelm us. And so we really do need to see this as a wake-up call. Bouncing back implies we're going back to the same tracks we were on, just as a reset implies we're going back to the same operating system we were in. This is dangerous. We need a different and more fundamental rethink to ensure that we do not return to business as normal. It's business as normal that got us to where we are. What we need to do is ensure that this pandemic leads us to create a more inclusive, sustainable world where everyone can prosper and where these risks, which increasingly will overwhelm us if we don't deal with them, are finally addressed. Thank you very much. So we now have Thank time, I think. Thank you very much, A.M. Yes, we have time for Q&A. 
Thank you very much for the enlightening uh, conversation and the very unique perspective on the global reset that we're facing at the moment. I have a question to you before we take the questions from uh, the, the audience who I'm, I'm sure patiently waiting to have this conversation with you. Um, what's your take on reverse globalization? We have seen a, a great trends um, that are happening globally on this aspects of a reverse globalization and the global call of making sure that there is a national autonomy when it comes to building certain economies. What will be the setting, I would say, trends that we will see for the next um, 20 years and that will last with us for the next 20 years out of this pandemic when it comes to reversing the current globalization aspects that we're having? Um, all countries need to ensure that they manage globalization, that they manage uh, what comes across their borders, uh, that they act in their citizens' interests. And I'm not advocating that we should have one country in the world uh, and no borders. Although it's interesting that the one experiment on that, which is the European Union, uh, has been extremely successful. Uh, 27 countries in Europe have no borders between them. Uh, you can move between them. Uh, they have uh, shared their defense force. They've shared their foreign policy and they're sharing their markets, what's called the single market, the freedoms within Europe to move around. So it's not uh, that, I cannot, that you cannot be totally open. You can, but within a group of like-minded countries. The trend towards higher bald walls, I believe, uh, is dangerous. There's no wall high enough to keep out the challenges. And I think it will slow global growth. It will slow the gro global search for solutions to the pandemic, but to climate change, to other threats we face. It creates antagonism. It increases the risks of armed conflict. Uh, and that uh, it's not beneficial in terms of achieving its end, which is to try and open countries up. The one country that's totally deglobalized is North Korea. Uh, and its isolation has not helped since the 1950s. So over a 60-year period has not helped in making it more open. There's no evidence that isolating um, North Korea has led to its transformation. There are some cases where I do think sanctions are a good idea, including the one that I personally was very involved in, which is South Africa. I think sanctions helped the transformation of South Africa. But isolation generally uh, is something which I don't think we should be thinking about. We should be thinking about more, more contact and more integration between countries. And... Um, there's a real danger now, I think, and we see it in the US, uh, we see it in elsewhere, of this withdrawal from globalization. Some elements in globalization need to be stopped. Illicit, you know, illicit traffic in people, for example, child, children not, not least. Uh, there are guns, the smuggling of weapons. These are things, aspects of globalization which are terrible, just like we need to stop pandemics and uh, movements of uh, illicit money, money laundering, and many other flows. 
We also need to close tax havens uh, because they stop governments getting the resources they need. So there are many things that need to be done to make globalization more effective, but deglobalization is not going to achieve them. Uh, deglobalization just makes everyone less cooperative and the world more risky. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, so our next question is from Shirijan Pandey, uh, and he's asking about the future of job. With the nature of jobs transforming into more automated and virtual models, how can governments respond to manual and skilled workers who aren't prepared for this shift? Will there be a shift for jobs for them as well? What do you see on this aspect? I think this question of the future of jobs is absolutely critical. Um, and we don't have the answers for it. We need to find them quickly. Uh, the issue is that even if we can create a lot of new jobs, uh, and there's a question mark about that, will they be the, in the same place? You know, In the US, for example, the jobs that are being lost are in the Midwest, where there's no new jobs uh, in many of these towns. And the, the jobs that are growing is in California, but the people in the Midwest cannot afford to go to California, they can't afford to live there, and they don't have the right skills uh, required for the new jobs. And so this transformation as it accelerates is going to dislocate more and more people. I think the answer is in stronger safety nets. Uh, we need, and that of course requires government money, that requires taxes. We need to be able to guarantee people a minimum income. I'm not for universal basic income, because I don't think we should be giving everyone money. I don't think we should be giving rich people money, taxpayers money. They should be paying, not getting money. It's the unit, but we should have basic income, which is that no one in our society starves. No one is below a certain level. And that is going to require a very strong safety net. There's evidence also that when you give people basic income, that they become more willing to take risks. Uh, we see from Denmark, for example, which has a strong safety net, there's more small businesses created. Uh, there's more entrepreneurial spirit. than there uh, is in neighboring countries which have weaker safety nets. So the idea that somehow people get lazy or something is just not borne out by the evidence. So that's what part of it. Training is very, very important. Retraining especially for people in the middle of their careers who lose their jobs. I think it's very important to think about flexibility in terms of movement, because the new jobs are in different places to the old jobs. Uh, so how do people go to where the new jobs are? And that requires more flexibility in housing markets, enabling people to move more in schooling, in pensions, in child care, independent care. It's those things that often are the reason people can't move because they can't get their kids into a new school. They can't leave their elderly parents. Uh, they can't afford a property in where the new jobs are. And all of focusing on those issues about how do you create a more flexible economy that's fit for the 21st century. All of these dimensions are important. They all mean that you need a government that's capable. Uh, and you need a government not only capable in one state, but in multiple states, because you're going to be leaving one state to go to another in the US, for example, 
uh, to get a job. So um, that's part of what I would see as the answer. I don't think we can stop technology and ban automation. That is, in my view, yeah. not the solution. We need to make sure that within our societies, we create meaningful jobs. And many of the meaningful jobs in the future are going to be in things machines cannot do. And so we need to think very deeply about what is it that machines cannot do. And of course, it's more in services like care, like interpersonal services. And so we need to invest in those. But it's also in creative services. Great cooking yeah. in a restaurant, uh, great entertainment, uh, providing people with experiences. That is the future. Uh, that cannot be done by machines. And it's that which I think will increasingly uh, be where the jobs of the future are and the value added in the future. Very interesting. We have a push onto this question as well from Dara Latino, uh, Latino. And she's asking, she's first thanking you very much for your insightful lecture. And she's asking, uh, in the current dissemination of jobs and rapid reskilling, as you have just described, um, it will be central uh, to have a, a strict responses to this from governments um, and a generic strategy. How would you see education and adult learning being transformed in order to enable faster adoption of relevant skills and capabilities? Yeah, uh, education is vital and it's great that you're part of this uh, NYU Institute, which is, which is an example of that. I think we need a more flexible education system. Uh, which is at different ages, in different ways, with different products. There's been too much focus on universities with young people, basically leaving school, going into university. Uh, it needs to be much broader um, for people at different stages, continual learning, many more, a wide, much wider range of products, short-term, long-term, online, uh, interpersonal, and different areas of skill. Um, one of the disconnects we've seen now is that many elderly people don't feel comfortable uh, digitally uh, and overcoming those barriers is important. Constant learning because we change all the time. I'm involved in a big initiative in economics called coreecon.org. That's C-O-R-E dot econ.org. Um, sorry, core hyphen econ.org, which is an initiative to try and think about economics as a more practical discipline, a useful discipline, and to give people free online economics access, both for students um, and policymakers, which is done very, very well. We have over a few hundred thousand people around the world doing this in multiple languages. So initiatives like that, which help people uh, learn new skills, are going to become more and more important. And of course, that big raises the question, what's the business model? for all of this, who's going to pay? And we're seeing big changes in that as well, um, as the traditional universities are finding it very difficult in a remote world to compete with the new cheaper online products. So I think there'll be a shakeout. I think good institutions, good products uh, will win out, but there will be more differentiation along those lines. And again, it's absolutely crucial that much more focus uh, is put on education. Yeah, perfect. Um, we have a follow-up question on reverse globalization or deglobalization and the effect on social um, inequalities from Fernando Gonzalez Florenzo. 
Floranzano, and he's saying countries with the protectionist nationalist governments are going uh, or moving on the opposite direction of globalization. Though these countries are growing, I do not want to be pessimistic, but what are the chances of a worldwide conflict in the future based on increasing inequalities uh, of these societies and on the countries that want to be greater by their own uh, closing their borders? Um, what do you think? What's your take on this? Would, would the current deglobalization move create higher level of inequalities? Yes. Um, deglobalization, countries becoming more nationalist and protectionist, uh, increases inequality within the countries and between the countries. Uh, and that's because within the countries, it slows growth. Um, it tends to be associated with policies which favor certain firms over others, um, which distorts economic activity domestically. But it's mainly because it slows overall growth. It's, course, it's also very bad for consumers. What people often forget as they're trying to pr protect producers uh, from foreign competition is the consumers are the majority of the population. Everyone consumes, not everyone produces uh, the, the products which are being protected. So if you stop, for example, T-shirts coming in from China, uh, because you want to favor your domestic t-shirt manufacturer, you will give jobs to people producing t-shirts in your home country. But everyone in the country is going to have more expensive t-shirts. And because poor people spend a bigger share of their income on these essential goods, like t-shirts, like food, etc., that are imported, poor people are particularly disadvantaged. And that's why protectionism is very regressive and particularly uh, penalizes poor people. Rich people spend a very small share of their income on traded goods. Uh, and, you know, if the tariffs go doubles for a T-shirt, a rich person is not really going to notice the difference. But if a tariff, and on food and on other imported products, but poor people will suffer dramatically. So it increases inequality and between countries, of course, because it doesn't allow the countries that export those products, Latin American, African, Asian countries that export products, food, shirts, etc., uh, to grow, to sell, to export, to create jobs in export industries. And it's reciprocal. If you're going to protect against someone, they're likely to protect against you too. Uh, and they're also going to suffer because they're going to the things they need, like light bulbs or medicines or whatever, are going to be more expensive. So um, it increases inequality, it slows global growth, and it leads to increasing tensions because you're talking less. You have less interdependency, and it's interdependent. You know, you don't want to bomb a country if they're producing your food uh, or if you've invested there. Um, Whereas if you have nothing to do with them, then you're more likely to not understand them, to not be friends with them, with people there, not have visited them as tourists, um, and not suffer uh, if they suffer. And so uh, it has very negative spillovers, which escalate over time. A key question, of course, is what is going to happen um, with the Biden presidency? Does that change the U.S.? And my view is, in some respects, it will, um, at least on issues like the World Health Organization and climate. I think we'll see the U.S. come back very quickly 
and be part of the global community. But on other issues like trade, I think the U.S. is going to be difficult. The first early test is going to be whether it approves Ngozi Okonjo-Iwala's appointment as the DG of the WTO, the World Trade Organization, which has been stopped uh, by the U.S. That's going to be a big early test um, for the Biden administration. And um, I hope that they go ahead and appoint her. She's great, and she has international support. Um, the U.S. needs a functioning World Trade Organization, World Health Organization, climate agreement, and it needs better relations with everyone, including China. And that's going to be another big test. So um, I hope that we are going to turn down the dial on protectionism. Uh, but this has been a devastating pandemic. And as countries try to uh, create jobs for their populations afterwards, their instinct, which might be a very bad one, uh, might be to have more protectionism. So it's a, it's a dangerous time in that respect, and I hope that sense prevails. Yeah, it's it's as you have said earlier, it's a balanced game of of trying to build a national capability, but not close doors um, yeah. um, on uh, you know global collaboration, especially now, especially seeing what we have seen recently on the development of vaccine and other aspects as well. Exactly. So we have the next question from Albert Goldson. And Albert is from uh, Ciroline Council, which is a US-based think tank. And he's asking about uh, the fact that economic powerhouses like China, Japan, USA, EU face, a demo face a demographic challenges with an aging population. How does this impact their ability for future global leadership? Uh, I would add into that, especially in the light of, you know, um, um, adapting and responding to the current crisis and pandemic. Yeah, um, I, I didn't talk about demography, but it's a very, very important question. One of the things that's happened during the pandemic is that population growth has slowed a lot. Of course, some elderly people, a million people have died. Uh, but more importantly than that, uh, fertility has gone, accelerated its decline as well. I would know more importantly, but also from demographic point of view, uh, the lasting impact. And um, what we're seeing in the U.S. is the lowest fertility rate uh, for a very long time. We're seeing this in China. We're seeing it in many, many different places, South Korea, Germany, uh, and many others. And that's partly because immigration has slowed down uh, as well because of the pandemic. So there's a rapid aging of populations, less people being born. People's life expectancy on average is still improving in many countries uh, and will once there's a vaccine again. Um, and that means a rapid aging of workforces. Now, this has many, many implications. In China, there are 4 million less workers this year than last year. Um, and that means that wage costs will go up in China quite dramatically. In fact, some people say that China's already reached peak population. Uh, I don't think so. I think it'll increase for another 5, 10 years. But it's, it's definitely reached peak workforce, the size of the workforce. Um, and in Europe, the similar things are happening where we see workforces contracting, and they will in the US as well. Immigration is one question, but even if immigration was very high, it wouldn't compensate for some of these demographic trends. 
so this has many implications. The elderly become a bigger share of the vote. Uh, the, I think we'll see an end to retirement. That's going to be accelerated by the fact that very low interest rates mean that pensions are going to be worth less and less. The investments that pensions have in relatively uh, low-risk assets like fixed income are getting lower and lower returns. In fact, some of them now have gone negative. And that means that you have to save more and more and more and more for an equivalent standard of living in your old age. That means you consume less and less and less. And that has dramatic implications for growth and demand, which is uh, a very worrying feature of this, which is one of the reasons we need more and more stimulus uh, to put more and more money into the system, because savers are not going to do it. Um, so this has dramatic implications. Uh, and of course, elderly people are a bigger part of the vote. So they vote for better pensions for themselves, where they state pensions. I think we'll see more and more old people in the workforce. Uh, that's going to mean more and more need for education for, of elderly people to keep up. And um, it's going to mean that young people have to wait longer and longer to become CEOs uh, and to rise up in organizations, which will make them more frustrated. So there are many things going on here. Um, and it's certainly going to change the nature of competitiveness, it's the nature of government obligations and savings and consumptions and the macro. And it's happening in many countries. Over half the countries in the world now have fertility rates which are below replacement. So this is not just a rich country phenomenon. It's also true of much of East Asia. Um, it's true of some countries in Latin America. Um, and it's um, true of much of the Gulf as well. So we're seeing a, a very, very significant change in demography, which is going to have very big political consequences and economic consequences. Wow. That's definitely a very, a very um, I would say, optimistic uh, preview of the situation and realistic view of the current situation that we're having. Um, uh, we have a question from Sandus Azzi, which is again a follow-up on education, and I love this kind of celebration of how education should evolve um, given the current uh, you know, crisis that we have and the current pan uh, the stress of the pandemic that we have. Um, and she's asking, uh, um, what about the future of education with some countries where we are seeing uh, the atmosphere and the tension being pushed uh, into adapting uh, a digitalization aspects of having distance learning, schooling, and the challenges that faces developing countries to join in into the force of, of these norms of education. How, how would you see um, the future digital educational platform when it comes to building a holistic and inclusive platforms for the different demographies and the, as you have just described and the different um, populations around the world. Yeah, um, I think what the pandemic has highlighted in this dimension, as it has in so many others, is the inequalities. Um, you know, firstly, you need good connectivity and broadband, and that is highly, highly uneven in different places. So that's one key dimension. Another key dimension is whether people have privacy at home. If you're living six to a shack, uh, as people do in, in much of Africa, um, 
and in parts of Latin America and Asia, uh, you can't really learn. Uh, if you don't have electricity at night, uh, you can't really be connected. So there are many inequalities which are reinforced uh, if you can't just go to school uh, and try and escape some of these inequalities. Uh, and um, that pushes the need to have this infrastructure uh, to overcome it. Uh, and also that while remote learning is an option for many people, uh, if we go to it, uh, we need to understand that we need to overcome some of the underlying uh, inequalities. And then there's the differences in the quality of the remote uh, experience, uh, the quality of the teaching, the quality of the materials that go with it, uh, and the systems used for evaluation uh, and certification going forward. So these are all key, key questions um, that need to be addressed. Uh, and uh, I think you know, the question is right, is it can increase inequalities or it can overcome them. Uh, it has the advantage that people can join in from all over the world as they are uh, with this webinar at no cost to themselves effectively. Uh, that's much cheaper than going to a very expensive place in an expense, you know, and living for a year. On the same time, uh, even that is differentiated uh, by access, etc. So I think all the points you raise are absolutely right. Yeah, that's right. I think there is always the fact that you have a wider platform where education without border is being offered at the moment for many populations around the world. And I hope that, again, as you just said, the business model will, will be differentiated to, to, towards creating less gaps between the different groups around the world. Uh, we have another question as well from Dara Latino. And she's asking that you mentioned tax haven um, and the fact that tax havens would need to be eliminated. However, these are no longer... Um, and remote locations like uh, uh, Cayman Islands, uh, but are right at the heart of the developed nations, like in the US, for example, South Dakota, in UK, the city of London. As such, um, as such how do you see us dismantling the tax evasion infrastructure and also raising wider awareness about this issue? Very few people know the devastating tax, uh, the devastating effect of tax havens on our economies. Would you like to elaborate on this aspect? Yeah, I mean the race to the bottom uh, in tax for individuals and for companies uh, is a big problem because governments can't raise taxes and therefore they can't spend it on education, on infrastructure, on health, etc. And um, and that is a fundamental issue. This is going to require a concerted effort to overcome. The OECD, through what its project, which it calls BEPS, um, Base Erosion and Profit Sharing, it's a big global initiative which the OECD has had, has made big progress in this. It's identified the different ways in which um, taxes evaded, um, by companies, and it's uh, actually got a draft agreement in place, which the U.S. has refused to sign. Now, again, perhaps this will be one of the things that comes out of a, a Biden presidency uh, would be tremendous if the U.S. would sign uh, the BEPS agreement and implement it. I think we also uh, need to hold people and customers and um, 
companies accountable. We know that, for example, uh, the big providers like Amazon, Google, and others use uh, these tax arbitrage uh, to minimize their tax. We all use their services. Um, are we prepared to put pressure on them as shareholders or as customers and others uh, to do better? Uh, in the EU, there's a big tension because it's not only um, the places we know about, like Monaco, Liechtenstein, Luxembourg, but also, of course, Dublin, Ireland, um, and others, as you've mentioned, uh, who are tax havens. And now we see Portugal, Malta, towns in Italy offering um, residency on condition of certain amount of investment in return for very, very low limits on the amount of tax uh, obligations that people will have. Um, so there, there is a race to the bottom in this. I believe that uh, it could be and needs to be the subject of an international agreement. It's the only way to grapple with this. You cannot do it in one country. People just go to another country. Um, and that everyone would benefit. The countries would all benefit if everyone agreed. So it's one of these classic games, game theory uh, analyses. Um, how do you get it into place? And uh, this is, you know, we talked about the need for cooperation uh, to manage pandemics, to climate change and others, but this is another example where we have to do it. But it's not only governments that have to act. I think consumer groups uh, can also, shareholders, uh, really expecting our companies to pay their fair share to societies uh, is part of the solution. Perfect. Um, I think we have a question as well from Enich Goli, who is asking, how do you see the future of certain political and economical separation within specific economies, as in the Brexit and the UK, um, in the light of the current pandemic? If you have, um, I think it's, it's a very wide aspect to comment on in, in the current platform, but if you have any take on this that, uh, um, that you would like to share, we'll appreciate it. Yeah, well, um, on Brexit specifically, I think it's a terrible, terrible mistake for the UK. I was one of a group of uh, economists. Uh, we had over 500 who signed a petition, a letter, saying we thought it was a very bad idea. And the pro-Brexiteers really couldn't find any credible economists, maybe they got five, uh, who supported the idea. Um, it doesn't make any economic sense. It's a political move. Uh, the UK will be greatly diminished uh, economically. We will see on top of the pandemic uh, a lot of, lot of difficulty in the coming years in the UK as a result of this. Um, and um, it's very ironical that, that this, one of the sticky points in the negotiations at the moment <coughs> is the thing that um, Maggie Thatcher insisted the EU adopt, which was restrictions on state aid. Uh, the ability of governments to support companies. Now the UK is saying this is a major reason of disagreement, uh, 180 degrees different to what Maggie Thatcher uh, would have said. Uh, it's bad politically uh, because the EU is undermined by Britain leaving. I think we were uh, in the UK a good force uh, in terms of international focus in the EU, focus on development, uh, focus on some of the multilateral questions, uh, not least in pandemic management. The 
UK was a good contributor to the EU playing a big role globally and also on climate change. Uh, the EU will be fine without the UK, but the UK now has no voice globally compared to when it was a, had a lot of leverage through um, the European Union. So the UK's global leverage has declined, its economic position will decline, and it won't be long before it's out of the top 10 countries in the world politically and economically, whereas it was in number you know, two, three, four uh, before Brexit. So this is a very, very rapid decline uh, in it. We hope in Oxford, we still rated number one in the world. So that's a big issue for us. Uh, we hope to stay there, but it's more difficult because of Brexit, uh, because we depend uh, for about 20% of our budget on support from European um, financially, you know, the European Union's uh, research budgets. We collaborate on many, many uh, European research collaborations where we are the lead. Uh, that can no longer be the case after Brexit. And we have many, many foreign students and foreign faculty uh, who will be paying more. Uh, the foreign students will be paying more because of Brexit and the foreign faculty will have to apply for visas and be feeling maybe less welcome and their family members might not be able to work, etc. So uh, it's bad in every respect, um, soft power, hard power, financially, politically. Um, in the medium term, it might be good for Europe because it'll wake Europe up uh, and we're already seeing that. And the list of countries who want to join Europe is much greater than the list that want to leave it. I don't think the UK will get a particularly good deal. The U European Union has no interest in making sure that if you leave it, you get it, you do really well. Um, and the UK, for the UK, 50% of our trade is with Europe. So it's very, very important to us. For Europe, only 7% of their trade is with Britain. We're not so important to them. So they have much more leverage in negotiations um, with us. And of course, they're much bigger and richer in all respects and more powerful. So it's a, it's a really sad uh, thing, which can only be understood through the uh, politics, the ambitions of Boris Johnson to be prime minister, the anger felt about the failure of particularly the London experts uh, and bankers to look after people. My own view is that this would not have happened without the financial crisis. Uh, it's that which led to Brexit, growing inequality, growing failure of uh, the, the system to stop risk, which had a devastating impact on people's lives. I also think that's true of the US, that we would not have had Trump in the White House uh, if it hadn't been for the financial crisis. So these crises really matter. And when people are angry, because they've lost their jobs, because their incomes are down, because some people in the city seems to be doing better and better. And that's happened then and it's happening again. It has very bad political consequences. People vote uh, in an angry way. And in the US, we've seen, although President Biden has won, um, President Trump got 7 million more votes than he got last time. Over 70 million people mm -hmm. supported uh, Trump. And they're difficult to understand other than people just don't trust the system because it's let them down so badly. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a very um, reality check for most of us here. Um, so we have a question related to healthcare, and this is one of our final questions here. Um, yeah, it has, 
Exactly. It has two uh, vertices. It says, what would you foresee as a long-term effect on healthcare um, out of this current pandemic and how to overcome the downside of these long-term effects? And the second part is, do you foresee a vaccine war happening? Uh, because currently we've seen vaccination being used as also an economic leverage for certain countries. Uh, how would you foresee that? Yeah. On the um, health consequences, the short-term consequence in other health areas is extremely negative, uh, both in the rich countries where we've seen a big increase in deaths from heart, cancer, and other um, problems that have been neglected because of the focus on COVID, and in developing countries because we see much higher levels of malnutrition, the same issues, but also much higher late rates, for example, of malaria and other po other uh, problems, collapsing vaccination programs because people can't travel, uh, etc., because there's no money. So the short, so the consequences for health are bad. Um, in the medium term, uh, you know, everyone's been clapping for the carers. Uh, the status of health workers has gone up. If in the medium term, this translates to bigger budgets, uh, more attention to health, to stopping pandemics, uh, more investment in research, uh, then the medium term, the outlook is good. But we need to see that. And that relates to your second question, uh, which is vaccine nationalism. Uh, there's a real risk. Uh, the Oxford Group, which uh, I know, uh, has insisted that uh, their product be available widely, open source, and uh, very low cost. So if it's the Oxford vaccine that wins this, um, uh, then it'll be available. But as you know, I don't know what the arrangements are with the Pfizer vaccine, which has just been announced uh, in this regard. There are big organizations like Gavi, uh, the World Health Organization as well, has a, a means to buy vaccines in bulk and distribute them. Uh, but there's, it would take a lot of money and a lot of time to distribute this globally. So. I think there is a real risk and we need to guard against it uh, because we can't be protected in any country unless all countries are protected. Very insightful. Thank you so much, Ian, for being with us tonight and for this insightful and I would say very realistic and optimistic take on the future of globalization and development in the world in the light of the current pandemic that we have. I think we've all learned here through the research that you have shared with us that we do have resiliency and we do have agility to, to stand uh, our ground in terms of everything that's happening around us. Uh, it all depends on the resiliency that we have. Thank you so much for, for being with Thank us tonight. You for having Thank me you for and good week. luck and good health to all of you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.com edu slash institute.